Morning, everybody. Uh, yes, I was in Chicago this last week. We had an equip that was put on by New Covenant Ministries International, which is a group relate to. It's a bunch of, all it is is a bunch of churches that are all working together to um, help and love and support each other, to encourage each other, to train each other up, to um, be involved with one another, um, and really follow the apostolic model we see in the New Testament, where they, um, Paul went out, he planted churches, and he didn't just say, see ya. No, he came back, he knew them, he trained them up, he checked in on them. They were still, there was relationship with there. They were a part of each other's lives, and they continued to come in and be gifts into those churches, and so that's what we continue to do for one another. So periodically, when we have someone come in, it's not because I need a break. Uh, it's not because we need, just need a good guest speaker. It's um, following this model of bringing people in to give encouragement, to build each other up. And a real big part of bringing people in is so they can see whatever blind spots we have. Because by the name, because they're blind spots, we cannot see them. Um, so it's very helpful to bring people in regularly to continue that relationship. And it gives us a real big picture idea. Because it can be in the day-to-day, -day, the week-by-week, the year-to-year, -year, really get caught up in what we're doing right here, what we're doing right now. We get really just kind of central focus. We've got our community. This is what we're doing. We're trying to make impacts into our region. And we forget that we have a global church. We are one church. We're not just West Side Church and they have their church thing over there. No, we are all one church, one body of believers. So I encourage you in a real practical way to remind yourself of that. Be praying for the other churches in our region, those other leaders that are trying to do just the same exact thing. They're trying to love people. They're trying to love God. and They're trying to spread his message to all the world. And so just continue to remind yourself of that, that there is something bigger than who we are, but we get to be a part of this amazing thing. So I was doing that this last week. It was a, a lot of information. Uh, they kept us very busy, a lot of meetings, and then meeting people afterwards, a lot of training up. And for, for me, having been in this for many, many years, a lot of it I've heard, but there's nice nuggets here and a nugget there and a little thing I can apply here. Um, and so those things are there's good. There's never a point when we've got it all figured out. That's a dangerous spot to think we are in. Um, so we continue to seek out more information. We continue to seek out encouragement and wisdom from others. That being the case, I did prepare these notes last week, which is the most is a difficult thing for me now because I have a lot of time to think about it and tweak. And my intro gets longer and longer and longer um, the more I have to think about these topics and the things we're wrestling through. Uh, last week, we talked about Jacob and Esau having reconciliation, and Matt really highlighted in on this part of walking not in complete faith, and that it was a wonderful thing that they were reconciled and they were brought back together, but there were certain promises that God gave to Jacob that he didn't walk fully in. He kept on making backup plans in case, for some reason, God didn't show up in this, and so he made sure to overly humble himself and submit himself to his brother. And although this is part of humility, God said, I will protect you. Why are you afraid of your brother? When I said I would protect you, is walking in incomplete faith. He's still on a journey. There's still a measure of compromise in what he's doing here. And so looking at that today, um, we're going to be talking about uh, an overarching subject and a couple of other difficult things within it of this idea of moral ambiguity, is that when we get to a difficult spot in our life, suddenly we're real comfortable with moral ambiguity. That most of the time we would say, hey, if it's moral, then it's not ambiguous. Mm -hmm. There's right and there's wrong. 
until we ourselves get to that point in our life where we're faced with a really difficult spot and suddenly moral ambiguity starts to make a bit more sense to us. That doesn't make it any more right than it was before. I do stand by, if it's moral, it's not ambiguous. And I do find very often in our lives, we can get ourselves into a situation because we've started to settle and we'll get ourselves into our situation where there aren't good choices anymore. Where you are presented with two bad choices or three bad choices or however many bad choices, none of them are good because of the situation you allowed yourself to settle into. That's what we're talking about. Jacob and his family have settled along the way. They're not to where they're meant to be yet, and they've settled for quite a bit of time. The kids have grown up a bit. They're almost, some of them are adults now. Some of them are almost adults now. In this account, uh, Joseph and his half-sister Dina could be no more than 16, 17 years old at this point. But last week, they were six or seven. It's been some time. They've settled along the way in a spot they shouldn't have. And today, we're going to be presented with no good choices. I send my notes out to the eldership team every week in case something happens to me. They've at least got something to go on. It's been described as colorful spaghetti before, so, but at least they have something. Um, and so there was a question asked of this last week, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in this story? The answer is no. <laughs> All, as we read through this, the only time you're going to hear about God is when I insert it into the story. He's not mentioned here. We can find ourselves in a situation in life where as we've settled along the way where we stop asking God. We stop seeking, is this what I'm meant to do? Is this how, I, how should I handle this situation? We're not going to see that here. And we wonder why there might be problems. And we might be faced with just a really, really difficult situation. This idea of what is the lesser of two evils? And I would say the lesser of two evils is still evil. Just because it's lesser doesn't make it better. It just makes it lesser. And we're going to find ourselves in that spot. And I know, I know, everyone's got the real extreme example of well, what, what sort of situation would, it, would this be right in? Um, people usually come up with, well, if you were starving, would you steal? I might, but it would still be wrong to do so. I might do that. I don't know. I haven't been in that situation. I haven't been tested to that. It wouldn't make it right because I was starving. If you were in Nazi Germany and you were hiding the Jews up in your house, would you lie to the authorities? I probably would. And I would rest on the fact that God would forgive me for lying in my attempt to protect innocent bloodshed. Did it make it right that I lied? I'm not sure. But I'm not going to pretend in my mind and convince myself that it was because it makes me feel better. Will I stand and I think that's the right decision to do? Sure. Will I, am I going to answer to God for that? Yes. And I think in that situation, I'm willing to, but I'm not going to lie to myself about it. And I don't want us to do that either. I want us to be honest about what we're approaching and not lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. And the fact that sometimes we get into a spot where there aren't good choices anymore. Moral ambiguity. 
Proverbs 1, 2 through 7. I want this to guide us this morning. It says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. No one is there yet. Everyone has more to learn. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. There are some things in Scripture that you have to work out. It is not plain. We have to tease out the truth from it to find the nugget of gold at the center. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. My great hope is that we avoid that difficult situation in the first place. And the best way to avoid finding yourself in that spot is to seek the Lord's counsel all along the way. We can do that and still find ourselves in the place, but we did everything we could through the guidance of the Lord to not be there. And it's much less likely that you will be there if you're constantly following after the Lord's guidance to guide your steps. Now, within our chapter, people who settled along the way and the issues we find ourselves in. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. First verse, we've already got some issues. Dinah went out alone. It would have been expected during this time and for thousands of years thereafter that she would have had some sort of escort for her protection. A brother, a father, a well-trusted servant of the household that she would not have gone out alone. That she would have had someone there to look after her. And we might look at it, well, that was the... That was then, and if we have this idea now, because the concern is that she will be raped. That's the concern. Not someone's just going to assault her, not that someone's going to be mean, not that she's going to be abducted, that she will be raped. We're going to be blunt about this today, about the horrors that can happen, and we can look at it as like, well, that was then. Is that really now? And I would say 100% yes, that's still now. We might want to think we're in a more elevated time, but one out of three women on a college campus will be assaulted by the time they graduate. One out of five women, all women in their lifetime, will be assaulted sexually by somebody. Somewhere between 90 and 95% of all sexual assaults happen to women. And overwhelmingly, they happen by somebody they know. We cannot look at this as something that is for them. When we talk about female empowerment, absolutely, man gave both men and women his image. When God created Mankind, he made them in his image. Male and female, he created them. We are all image bearers of God. 
We should be treated that way. Women should be empowered. Women should know you have the spirit of God upon you. You have everything to contribute, just like every man around you. But 95% of assaults happen to women. We have to consider that. We have to consider that for your protection. How do you go about life? We can say it till we're blue in the face, why does all the responsibility have to be on the women? And it shouldn't be. But should and shouldn't tend to not happen in our world, do they? Young men and older men, you need to be self-controlled. You are utterly the one at fault in this. It is never, ever, ever the woman's fault this happened. I don't care what she was doing. I don't care what she was wearing. It is never her fault. Are there things we can do to make sure these things happen less? Yes. Go out in groups. Don't stray out alone. Don't be in places we know we shouldn't be. Don't make unfortunate choices because you shouldn't have to worry about it. You shouldn't have to. No one should have to be worried when they go out that this might happen. But it does happen. To ignore that isn't wise. I want to say emphatically this statement for those that are married and those who that are not. If there isn't a yes, it means no. Whether married or not, if you don't hear the word yes, it meant no. This is not something we should ever hear of within the church. I have heard most recently terrifying practices and teachings that have abused women through the church. Twistings of scripture so that men can excuse what they want to do for their pleasure towards their spouses, family members. It's terrifying. It should never be so. I'm not going to beat around the bush about it. I want us to understand, if you've been in that sort of situation and we have people that can talk to you, we will guide you towards resources to be able to come and bring, find health and wholeness and recovery through this. But please don't remain silent. Please come to somebody you trust so that there can be healing in this. You can walk to a place of health and wholeness through it. So when I look at this, and I look at the situation, I look at even more so then, it seemed more likely to happen. It's still too likely to happen now. Where were her brothers? The ones at that time that were expected to protect her. Where were they? Well, they were working in the field. They were doing their job. Their day-to-day -day work. So then we go to the next people that should have been there. Where was her father and mother? 
This is the great wonder. Why was she let, yeah, just go. They were at home. For some reason, they were absent from their responsibility within this. They either couldn't time, find the time or they couldn't keep track enough that she got out alone. There is the minute chance, it doesn't say it in scripture, that she snuck away. But usually scripture says those things when someone sneaks away. So she just was able to go. Where were they? Because the next thing, the next line, this is gonna happen. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. We're introduced into a, a very complex portrait here now. Shechem has done an atrocious thing, a great wrong. And suddenly he finds himself actually in love with her. And now he wants to make this right by the standards of his time. He's done a great wrong. He finds himself in love and he wants to now make this right. This is a difficult thing to walk through and to deal with. How do we deal with the wrong? How do we deal with that we as a people are called to reconciliation. We are given as the people of God, the ministry of reconciliation to bring people back into health and wholeness to have, we say, no matter what you've done, you can come back to God. Do you believe that? We say it all the time. And a lot of times we're thinking, as long as it didn't do something to me. But that is something we abide by. Can we actually walk that out? Can we walk this out during the most difficult circumstances of life? That if someone wants to repent, if they want to return, if they want to restore, they've done a heinous thing and they want to turn away from it, will we receive them? Or will we take the judgment of God and say, I'm gonna be judged now. This is not an easy situation. I'm not saying that should be, oh yeah, of course. But you start, should start working through it now before you're faced to it. Before you meet it when all you have is raw emotions. We're gonna see raw emotions this morning. We're gonna see how the family reacts to this. What we've seen is the ultimate problem of humanity. It's the same pattern. Shechem saw, he desired, and he took, and pain came from this. You will see that pattern in scripture again and again and again from the very beginning. Eve saw, she desired, she took, pain came from it. Over and over and over again. We are told to guide, to not guide, guard, guard our eyes. 
guard what you see in all things. Guard what you see. Guard your heart because it's deceptively wicked. Your, your desire will pull you away. Remember, the overwhelming amount of times that this happened, it happens by somebody they know. They've been there a long time. This is probably not the first time Shechem has seen her. He probably allowed this desire to build again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled the daughter of Dinah, defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Anybody feel they were right to be indignant? Absolutely, they were right to be indignant, but how they handle it will be very important. Every right to be indignant at this atrocity. We should be indignant at sin in the world. The hardest thing is to hate the sin, but not the sinner. What are they going to do to make things right here? Such a thing must not be done. We are pre-law. I had another question this week. Is Deuteronomy a response to the mistakes of mankind? Or is it simply something that was always there, but is now finally just written down? And it is the latter. They knew these things were wrong. They're indignant. They already know it's wrong. In the cultures up to this point, any form of adultery was punishable by death. They already know it's wrong. When we look at the law, when we use that in these situations, it's not a reflection on the mistakes mankind has made. It's codifying what they already knew to be true and saying, we're going to put it down now so there is no excuse anymore for any of you. And so we're going to use the law as a reflection upon this, the things they already knew, why this was an outrageous thing to do. First of all, out of Numbers 15, for the assembly there shall be one statute for you and the stranger who sojourns with you. A statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law, one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. So it doesn't matter whether you're an Israelite or not, it's one law. It's God's law. It's applicable to everybody who is there with you. So their standards, just because the other nation's standards might be different, doesn't matter. If they're with you, they're under one law. So what does it say about this? We're going to look at two different contextual situations here of rape happening. 2A, Deuteronomy 22:25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, only the man who lay with her shall die. 
That's the severity of this crime. That's the punishment. If the woman is betrothed, that man shall be put to death for what he has done. Anybody think of their act? You don't, please don't admit this in front of everybody at this point, if you have done this in your life. <laughs> but if you have done this in your life, did you think, I'm doing something punishable by death? That's the severity God wants us to understand of what's happening here. It's punishable by death. There's only one context outside of this, one instance outside of this. That's the next one we're going to read, and it comes a couple lines later. That every other instance of sexual immorality within Scripture is punishable by death. Usually death by stoning. It's not a good way to go. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, dinas not betrothed. We have a different situation here. If a man who meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. They need to be married at this point. In our day and age and right now, anybody want to be married to that person? This is the part uh, that I need to give context because we are not in the same time as they are. If this were to happen to a young woman and she's not at fault, she cried out, she made every effort to get away, and it's the man's fault, he would be stoned and killed and she would be left in a state where she has now had sex outside of marriage. And no ma didn't matter that it wasn't her fault, she would have been thought of now as been defiled it would have been all but impossible for her to be married. She has no prospect of children. Most women, their prospect of surviving beyond the age of their husband, because the husbands died remarkably earlier than the women, her only chance of survival beyond that is her children who would have cared for her. It's a different age. She's got now in a situation where all but impossible for her to get married. If she had been married before, of course they would have had sexual relations, but that had been a whole different story. It's in a context in which it was expected. In this instance, she has no prospects for the rest of her life. She'll be a burden upon her family until her parents die. And then hopefully she has a brother to take her in. Otherwise she'd have been destitute for the rest of her life. So the situation here is you're going to pay the bride price to help care for her if you become a scoundrel. And two, you will take care of her for the rest of your life now. Even if you don't have a happy marriage, you will make sure that young lady is now fed and clothed for the rest of her life and she will give, you will give her children. It's a different context, it's a different time trying to find the best possible solution in this moment for the young lady in the worst possible of situations. This is the only instance in which these people don't die for what they've done. So they need to be married. And it seems that Shechem is willing to do that. Terrible situation. It's a lesser of two evils, right? Lesser of two evils. It brings honor back to the household. Because to do this didn't only dishonor the young woman, it dishonored the whole family she came from. 
And the or way to restore that honor was to make this right through marriage. We're going to do that. We're attempting to do that at this point. We have a third problem. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, these people are Hivites. They're going to get cleared away. If they don't leave, they will be decimated. This is God's judgment upon these people for not turning back to him. He knows it's coming. The only reason it hasn't happened yet is because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. We find that later elsewhere in Scripture. These people that they are next to, that now, now there's a discussion of marriage, of uniting to become one people, will be cleared away from the map. They cannot unite to these people. Should not, it cannot be, even be an option in their mind. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them you shall, you, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to them for son, to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. We are now faced with a no-win situation. The one context, and we might have some sort of restoration for this heinous act, is not an option now. So what do we do? But Hamor spoke to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. I will do whatever it takes to make this right. Whatever price, whatever act, whatever thing. Because it's not always money that's required here. Look to King David when he married Saul's daughter. It wasn't money he paid. It was a heroic act that Saul required of him. It's a pretty gruesome heroic act. Ask for me, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. I am in absolute love with her. I will do whatever it takes to make this right. It's a very tempting offer. You have Hamor. Hey, let us be one people. How about we have a little compromise here? I know you've been your own people. Been here a long time. We haven't done this up to this point. Let's have a little compromise. Let's work together on this. We don't have to be enemies. Just a little bit of compromise go a long way, right? Just to keep the peace. That's worth some compromise, right? Just to keep the peace. What's your morals? Just to keep the peace. What's truth? Just to keep the peace. I think there are many that struggle with that, would desire like, the peace above all else. If long as we can just be okay together, we can sacrifice a little bit of this and a little bit of that just to keep 
the peace in the home, keep the peace in the family, keep the peace with friends, but it's compromise. Compromise oftentimes that we shouldn't be making. Shechem, an over-the-top offer. Let me try to feed not only your greed, but your sense of justice in this. Whatever you want, I will do. It's so tempting to take that. And what's interesting is where is Dinah in all of this? Where's the acknowledgement of wrong? Where's the I know the great sin I've committed? Where's any of that in all of this? And literally, where is she? We're going to find out later. She's still in Shechem's home. Take into some consideration, some bargaining position here. Shechem is a prince of this land. That would make Hamor his father whether king or ruler, he's the most powerful person around. It could be a little bit more than we understand, as this might not necessarily be an offer, but it could be an ultimatum. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters, yes, ouch, um, <laughs> we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Several things very, very wrong with this. For one, it's profaning the covenant of circumcision. This covenant of circumcision is the covenant right now. It's their unbreakable agreement with God. Out of Genesis 17, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant, any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's meant to be sacred. Sacred and holy. Honoring the Lord, honoring this divine relationship he has with them as a people. And they're using it as a deception. They're using the holiness of God and profaning it in order to fulfill their deceptive ways. Proverbs 26, 24 through 27, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness, wickedness, will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. If you thought for a moment that God approves for this in any way, I say no. This is not what God would have them do. He would not have his people deal in wickedness and deceit. If anything, he would have them be outright in their outrage and demand the full price of whatever that might be 
for justice to be served, but he would not have them deal in wickedness and deceit. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, which should be a little surprising. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now they're seeing it as a win-win, right? We're going to be at peace with this people. They've been here for years. They've got so much. We haven't been able to break in until this point. This is the opportunity, fellas. Win-win, right? How much time did they take to think about this? to consider, to investigate. A win-win should be scrutinized. All you have to do is this little thing. (laughs) On the third day, when they were sore. (laughs) It is really easy to not do that properly and can cause a great deal of discomfort and pain. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob, which would imply the rest of them, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household, which includes them. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's the end of the chapter. We're left with moral tensions abounding. Because I think for some in the room, we're thinking, yes, at the vengeance, the swift and brutal vengeance for such a heinous act. But I would ask, did everyone in that town deserve to die? Did perhaps one man's act? Certainly. Everyone deserved to die as they let their wrath loose. 
did all of those women and children deserve to be enslaved? Because of one man's actions. Them letting their wrath loose. Do you know why God says vengeance belongs to the Lord and not us? We're not good at judging. We take it too far when our emotions run hot. Did justice need to be served? Yes. Was this justice? No. This was vengeance. And it's compared to their father's compromise. Jacob's response wasn't good either. Jacob was there in these dealings. He obviously didn't know his son's intention of deceit, but he'd have been there when everyone was talking and seemed to think peace was better than holding on to their moral standing. Because up to this point, it has been vehemently put out to us that they should not marry the inhabitants of this land over and over and over again. And he was willing to compromise for a little bit of peace to not rock the boat right now. We're compared to two sides of a response, both equally not there, not where they should be. And that's how often we find ourselves in life. There's two things we can respond. We go, well, which one's the lesser of two evils? They're still evil. They're still not right. They're still not what we should be doing. And where was God? He's not absent. He's been right here the whole time. But when did they once ask him? Lord, what should we do? How should we respond? What needs to be done? Rash decisions were made. The idea of being rash is acting without giving heed to the potential consequences. It's folly. Folly is from that root word fool. I'm going to keep defining that. It means godless scum. Is that who we want to be? Is that who we are? And I would say we are not. As God's people, we are called to be wise, which is the complete opposite of fools. Proverbs 29, 22 through 23, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jacob does have a legitimate concern that if we just wipe everyone out here, we are not numerous enough to protect ourselves. Just one clean sweep and we are gone. But again, he's not remembering the promises of the Lord. I will protect you. I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars. But his legitimate concern is how many people do you need to continue offspring? One. That means everyone else can die and we can still continue this offspring. And that's Jacob's concern. Everyone else will die for your mistakes, Simon and and Levi. Were you thinking about 
anybody else other than your pride and your honor in this. Yes, justice needs to be served. There's a better way. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That is the most difficult when your anger runs hot and it is the most crucial time to do so. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. It doesn't mean the person's actions were good or justifiable or okay, but he's saying that you as my people, I don't want you to be evil like them. I'm calling you to more than this, and I need you to be patient, and I need you to wait upon me. I need you to seek me during those most difficult times of your life. It is the most important in that moment not to become like the rest of the world. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Doing this is neither easy nor often satisfying. Vengeance is satisfying. It gives you feeling of power and control and justice within yourself, but is often not the justice of the Lord. It often tends only to evil. What can we learn? The world without God is wicked. The world always has God. Keep this in mind. God is always here. He is always present. He is always available to us. Through all of Israelites, Israel's history, God is there. Through all of our history, God is there. When we stop turning to God, we tend towards wickedness over and over and over and over again. We tend to wander when we take our eyes off the one guiding us. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the one who carries out evil devices in our crusade for righteousness and goodness and justice in this world, if we take our eyes off of what God has told us to do for a minute, we are going to wander in that rage against the awfulness of this world. And there is plenty of it to be outraged by these days. God says, you need to keep focused on me the whole time or you are going to be pulled away choosing what is right will often mean a denial of self, a denial of your own personal sense of righteousness, your own personal sense of justice, your own personal sense of good and what you want to happen. And often choosing what is right will be in some way denying this for the sake of what God says we should do. James 1, 12 through 16, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What are the sins? What are the desires we've seen within this? For Shechem, it's lust. He allowed his lust to lead him astray. For Simeon and Levi, it's revenge. Their desire for revenge has led them astray. For Jacob, he doesn't want to have any conflict. He's had enough conflict in his life. He's in, he's probably over a hundred right now. He's willing to avoid all conflict. That's his desire. It's leading him away from what is good and what is right. I'm going to end with this out of Proverbs 1. We're going to go back to God's book of wisdom. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and shall have their fill of all their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Where do we want to be in that description. If we want to dwell to secure, if we want to be God's people, we have to declare that over ourselves daily. This is who we are. And that is tested during the most difficult of times. Amen? Would you stand with us? Thanks, Joe.